This episode was made possible by Private Internet Access. Browse the web safely and anonymously while changing your IP address to almost any country on Earth. Get two months free and prices as low as $3 per month by following my exclusive link below. When you use a public Wi-Fi hotspot, your data is completely unprotected. Hackers and identity thieves can grab anything. Embarrassing photos? Your web history? Start browsing anonymously and only share what you want to share. I actually kind of like this photo. <laughs> Private internet access. It's time to protect your online privacy. On this episode of Meet My Inspiration, I'm talking with rock legend and lead singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey. Roger is one of the founding members of The Who, a band that has been going strong for nearly 50 years. Roger is a legendary singer with one of the greatest screams in rock and roll. He's had a successful solo career as well, both in music and as an actor. In 2018, he also wrote his memoir titled Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, which is a great read for any fan of Roger and The Who. And now, please welcome Roger Daltrey. Welcome everyone to Meet My Inspiration. I'm Chris Minion. My guest today is legendary rocker and frontman of The Who, Roger Daltrey. Roger, thanks so much for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. Yeah, it's good to be here. Sorry I've let you down before. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, it's fair. Finally got the time. <laughs> good, good. Well, Roger, you're still looking great these days. And as we speak, it's during the COVID-19 lockdown period. I think you're in England and England is still kind of under a pretty serious lockdown. Uh, so what are you doing these days to stay fit, but also to stay sane during these tough times? I don't know whether I've ever been sane. <laughs> so, I don't know whether any, anyone in the rock industry is. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I, I live on a, on a farm. I live in the country. So it's, it, it, we're a very small community and the, the rhythm of the land doesn't stop for anyone. Yeah. Stop for COVID or, you know, you just got to keep it going. Uh, when that stops, we're all in trouble. <laughs> uh, so it's not been too bad. Um, um, and I mean, I've just devoted all my time to, to working for the for my main charities that I support. You know, yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that a bit later, I think. Uh, well, that's good. You're on a farm. You can get outside. You can move around a bit, get some yeah, sunshine. Yeah, and I, and I meet, meet, the, meet, meet the working guys who work on it. I mean, we, you, you have to be together. You're, it's like a bubble. Um, yeah. It is human contact. I think if I was in a one room of a council flat in London with a couple of screaming kids, I would probably have shot myself by now. Yeah, <laughs> it's been tough, been tough times for a lot of people, but uh, it's nice. Yeah, you can't find a gun in England to do that with. But <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's the good thing. Um, well, Roger, let's go. Let's. Uh, so, I really applaud those people that have, have had to do that. Oh, yeah, it's been rough. It's been rough. Um, well, let's go back in time. In fact, let's go back to the beginning for you, really. Um, you were born right near the end of World War II and grew up in a post-war England that had been devastated by the war. How rough was that period, and how do you think that it shaped you? Um, oh, it completely, our generation was completely shaped by it. Yeah. Uh, how rough was it? I don't think it was rough. I think we had a, a, a fantastic we had the best play, playground a kid could ever have to play in on, on sites. Uh, rubble. Rubble, uh, unexploded ordnance and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Uh, so, you know, you, when, you, when I look back on it, I don't see it as rough. Yes, we didn't have any, many possessions. We had very little housing. Families were shacked up together, three to, three to a house, really. 
everybody would take a floor, um, that kind of thing. But it was incre- we were incredibly wealthy. Uh, the, the, the society was so, I know it's so much more communal than it is today, even though we've got the internet and all that, it, it feels kind of distant to me. Yeah. Um, then everybody knew their neighbor, everybody helped out, um, street parties. It was a, it was a good, really good time. And of course, because everything had been leveled from the war, we had a blank canvas to paint our futures on. Um, so that that's a great start in life. So you know, not not financially well off at the time. I guess not really anybody it's was at that period. but whether that's you know that, that, that's it's it's not the most important thing in your life. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I want to know as a young kid, who did you look up to? Who did you admire? Maybe somebody from your life. Um. I, I had a big family of, uh, of aunties and uncles. I looked up to all of them. They were all fantastic people, very close family. But one of my uncles in particular was my mo- mother's younger brother. His name was Len. And he, he was the first guy who turned me on to music. He, he, he played in a, a traditional jazz band. He played drums. And uh, when I first saw them playing, uh, it just lifted me. It, and I just thought, I want to be in a band. <laughs> at, at what, what, at, at what age was that? I was probably about four years old. Oh, but wow. I mean, and looking at a snare drum when you're four years old and be able to hit it with a stick and get that noise out of it. Yeah. limited me to the thing. It was like this thing almost landed from outer space. And uh, so, and Len turned me on to a lot of country with people like Hank Williams and all that early country stuff. Um, and I just loved it. And it maybe it's because when I think that, maybe it's because all the, every time I saw Len, it was all, it always involved with the whole family and was always having a good time. So maybe yeah. that has more of an influence me because of that. But um, he was he was the p- main person I looked up to. And I had some, I had a, you know, I grew up with five girls in my house uh-huh. uh, um, as a young boy. You know, I had three cousins. And my two sisters. So that wasn't easy. You know, you learned to keep your legs crossed. Uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was, um, so I was always running away. I, I was, I was kind of infamous in, in my family for always going missing. They couldn't find me and I was running away. <laughs> were you just, were you getting, a, were you getting away from them or were you going somewhere? I've got a photo of me taken by my uncle outside my house in Shepherd's Bush running away. <laughs> actually running away. <laughs> they caught you in action. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about your school, uh, your time at school. So early on in primary school, I believe that you were a decent student, maybe even a pretty good student. Um, I, was I was very good in primary school. And I had exactly. a fantastic, we had a fantastic uh, schoolmaster and the head teacher in our, in our class was a guy called uh, Mr. Blake. And he was fantastic. He he was he just connected and he made everything fun. Even even the most difficult things, he made fun and he made them easy. And it was it was wonderful. And it, everything was an adventure for him. Every subject was an adventure. So he was a great inspiration to me. Well, and that that was a good period of time for you, I think, until unfortunately, 
or rather fortunately in some ways, you know, your family started doing a bit better and you guys moved to, I think, a more affluent neighborhood. And of course that meant that you had to transfer schools. Um, after you changed schools, you seem to have much less interest in academics and school overall. So I wanna know what happened and why did you become so disinterested in school? Uh, it was a weird period of my life. And I think back and, and I, I'm trying to kind of analyze it. Um, we only moved in distance probably no more than a mile and a half. Oh, really? We moved across a railway track that was supplying factories. They were, they were arms factories. That's mm -hmm. why we got bombed so much in Shepherd's Bush. Mm -hmm. And uh, these factories had their own railway lines to, to take goods in and out. And Shepherd's Bush was, was the, uh, what, would be, what would be the east side of that railway line. And where we moved to was just across the railway line, about, about a mile, mile and a half. And that was called Chiswick. And it was a totally different world. Absolutely quiet trees in the street. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it, it was so alien to me. And I was 11 years old. Um, and of course, I'd, I'd been around Shepherd's Bush people all my life. I had a you know, very strong Shepherd's Bush accent. There's a way of speaking in Shepherd's Bush. It's a, it's a, Shepherd's Bush is a wonderful melting pot. It was, was in those days, was an incredible melting pot and still is. You know, oh. all, all, all the first time immigrants were coming in from Jamaica and the West Indies. Uh, and and I, at the time, it was a more of a kind of a working class neighborhood, I think, right? Pardon? At the time, I think it was more of a it was more of a working class kind of neighborhood. Extremely working class. Uh, yeah. But Chiswick, of course, um, Chiswick was home to a lot of the executives to the BBC. So mm. they were totally differently educated. They, they'd all been to university and with a managerial class. Mm -hmm. that they, like I say, for me at the age of 11, it really did feel like another planet. And I felt for the first two weeks there, where I didn't quite, didn't quite know um, the, ground, the ground rules of, of, of just walking the streets even, it was so different. Yeah. I knew everybody in Shepherd's Bush, everybody knew me and we were, you know, it was fun. But there was no one in Chiswick. And there was, I mean, you occasionally saw a few people walking and they would all be middle-aged, um, very few children. And it was kind of, it was weird. I was so lonely the first two weeks. So then I, then I discovered that I could cross this railway line back to Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. I had this kind of dual thing going on you know, emotionally, uh -huh. um, trying to get to grips with this new world I was living in. It was great because we were at our own house rather than sharing with my three cousins. So that mm -hmm. was great. You know, I had a bit, a bit of freedom and we had a small back garden, very small. Um, but that was the upside of it. But the downside of it was the loneliness and the fact that I had to, to move out of Shepherd's Bush completely for my schooling. Yeah. Uh, to, to a and grammar you, you had a... You had a pretty tough time adapting to that new school environment, I think, right? It, it was it was a disaster for me. I mean, for me, it was, you know, like I say, I was a fish out of water and I just felt alien from the day I walked into it to the day I got thrown out of it. The best yeah, day of my life. 
<laughs> well, we're going to get to that. Um, it was a pretty rough period. It was a pretty rough period of time for you. I know quite a bit about your story and you were, you were pretty heavily bullied, I think. Um, you were pretty depressed and you were just doing terribly in school. Everyone was bullied in those times, but being small, because I am little, uh, and I'm proud of being small, I'm not, not ashamed of it. Um, they, you always found yourself on the worst end of it. And I, everybody got bullied in the first year, but when the bullying started in the second year, that's when I realised I, I, I'm going to have to do something about this. And I hit someone with a, with a chair. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a very good effect. And Where'd you hit him? <laughs> no, I whacked him around, around the back of the shoulders. I can't remember. I just picked uh, up a chair and whacked him. And it knocked him off me. And, and um, it just had the effect of keeping people away. They kind yeah. of they thought, well, if he's going to dish it out as well. We won't, we'll leave him alone and go on to someone else. Well, that but, worked um, out well. But it, but it did. Well, it did and it didn't. It um. I don't think I ever became a bully, but I, I did run with the pack yeah. um, because it was safer. Uh, and it was a weird pack in those days um, because that school was, it took in people from a huge surrounding area, mostly affluent middle class. And again, very few working class people. So I was still, still kind of out of the loop and still going back to Shepherd's Bush every night to mix with <clears> my old friends. Well, and, you, you, um, you kind of alluded to this uh, a moment ago, but I want to know who was Mr. Kibblewhite and um, what kind of role well, did he play in your life? He was the head of that school and um, he was the head, the head teacher of that whole school. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he, was, he wasn't a bad headmaster. He was a good headmaster. And, I, I, you know, I've, I've heard since that, you know, he kind of felt sorry for me in a way because I was such a fish out of water. And all I wanted to do was sing. And all I wanted to do was play in a band. <laughs> that's, I mean, the rest, is, the rest of it was all, that's just stuff to can get. I, can I ask a quick uh, side note here? At what age was that locked into your mind? We'll come back to Mr. Kibblewhite in a second, but at what age was it that's locked in your mind? 12 years old. 12. First year in school. Hmm. When I, I, I made my first guitar and I got inspired by a, by a musician. First of all, obviously Elvis, but then... Well, I know you're, I know who you're talking about, and we're going to get to him in a second. So why don't we why don't we come back to Mr. Kibblewhite and what role did he play in Mr. your life? Well, come back to Mr. Kibblewhite. He he was a good headmaster, but I was so unruly. He, he had yeah. no choice to get rid of me. I was disturbing, all, stopping all the other students from studying. I was a, I was just mischief. I was trouble. <laughs> the capital G. You, you had to go. You had to go. And no, so had to you. Go. You were ultimately expelled from school, and at what age was that? I was expelled on my 15th birthday. Right, right. And I was, um, I was straight out to work. And in hindsight, you're kind of, you titled your memoir, Thank You, Mr. Kibbleheim. <laughs> well, because he, that was what he said to me when he, when, he, when he kicked me out. He said, you'll never make anything of your life, Daughtry. And, and I thought to myself, well, thanks a lot, Mr. Kibbleheim. I'll show you. And you but now, certainly, back, of course, I, I do think that he had a huge effect on me. That him saying sure. that probably drove me to thought, I'll bloody well show you. <laughs> I'm not going to take, you know, I'm not going to take that line down. You certainly didn't. Well, somebody that you were, I think, about to mention is Lonnie Donegan. And I want to know what kind of influence did he have on you? 
First of all, who was Lonnie Donegan? He's probably not as well Lonnie known as Donegan was, was a was a Scottish Glasgow region. What would you call it? He did a thing, a music called Skiffle, which was based on kind of old lead belly, early American folk songs, um, country songs, but done in a certain way in a kind of music that was accessible to everybody. Um, he played acoustic guitar, just a rhythm guitar. And in the band, the bass was, would be a tea chest turned up upside down with a piece of string through the middle of it and a broomstick attached to the other end. And you would pluck it like a double bass and the more you tightened it, the higher it would go. And it would and they sounded fantastic. Um, drums, no drum kit, just a, a washboard and thimbles on your fingers. So you, and, and a, maybe a hubcap for a cymbal. So it was so, real so, homemade down home. What you would have seen probably down in the South in, 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 in those early days of the blues, but uh -huh. we were the early days of working class London, knocking out our own music. Um, and Lonnie, Lonnie Donegan was, um, I mean, there were popular musicians, you know, world, world, world renowned musicians at the time like Elvis, but Lonnie Donegan, I don't think achieved that kind of fame, maybe, you know, where you were. Um, but what Different mm -hmm. kind of fame. You'll find, if you look through the, the, the British singers of that period, people like Robert Plant, um, so many of us, yeah. You look at their inspirations and it will be Lonnie Donegan. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter about how famous he was. That wasn't the important bit of it. It was what he was doing. And what, what, was, he do what was he doing that was so appealing to you guys? It made, it made us realise we could do this. Mm. We could never be Elvis. I mean, we all thought we looked like Elvis. Of course, none of us <laughs> did. Um, uh, but um, but we, he made us, made us feel this is possible. I can do this. And when he used to throw his head back and let it rip with his voice, that's what used to get me. Because I thought that's the kind of singer I want to be. That's that makes absolute I, sense. That's where I'm my most comfortable when I'm singing. Screaming. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily screaming. It's more than that. It's it's just sure. getting that, those deep, deep, deep inside emotions out there. Yeah, and that's yeah. the way I seem to be able to do it properly. You know. Well, I want to know that. Um, like you just mentioned a moment ago, so many um, young musicians in England at the time um, were really identifying deeply with American blues music. What do you think the the attraction to that kind of music was, especially in that community? I think it's very similar. I mean, I think, you know, we, obviously we didn't suffer the, 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 the issues that were going on in the black community in America in those days, but we were the lowest rung of the ladder you could possibly hit. Yeah. In, in Britain at that time. So it, it spoke to us from that position. You know, uh, uh, um, and it was, it, it was the, the rhythms of it. And again, the, the, the fact that it was, wasn't polished, it was raw. That, that appeals to young people. That's why they like punk, that's why they like grime, that's why they like all that stuff that's out there now. It's raw. And that's an energy that goes with youth. And uh, so that spoke to us and uh, those guys were, were, they were our idols. They came over here, all of them came over here and they yeah. were treated like gods. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was wonderful to, to, to see their faces. They, because we would be standing there mimicking them, you know. Who did you and see, they, who did you see play in those early days? Huh? Who did you see play in those early days? The blues musicians? 
Oh, I saw Jimmy Reed, I saw Howling Wolf, I saw uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, John Lee Hooker. I mean, we saw them all. Uh, oh. the, the main one that used to play with us was Sonny Boy List, uh, Williamson. Hmm. He would just come up and he'd, he, you know, he'd, you might have to do a number with you. And he'd have, he'd have always in the same suit, always that these brown kind of, I don't know what kind of material it was. It was so <laughs> old and shiny. You could see your face in it. In it. <laughs> material it was so shiny and he had these little, little red box of harmonicas always with a bottle of johnny walker scotch uh and he and he we were so like in awe you know sonny boy williamson's playing a song with us <laughs> how that's fantastic that? that's awesome well uh while you and your band were coming up in the early days you were getting to know and hanging around with other now very well-known bands like the beatles and the rolling stones and so many others uh, I'm curious if you remember a piece of advice or something that you learned from one of those guys that you think maybe helped you over the years. Does anything stick out in your mind? Not really. No. I mean, I, I was so shy. I was, I'm a, I was very shy mm. in those days. Um, and I used to be in awe of them. I mean, when we supported the Beatles in 1964, and we traveled down to the stage as we went on, and they were in the elevator, and I, 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 I couldn't, I, couldn't, I just froze. <laughs> um, and I, and I, but I do remember. Uh, were you kind of starstruck by them? Totally starstruck. I mean, okay. yeah, totally. Couldn't, couldn't, mm -hmm. couldn't open my mouth. And that, and that goes on still to, to today. Really? I mean, I recently I got got in an elevator, and there before me was Judy Collins. I was going to an awards dinner and, and Judy uh -huh. Collins was there. And I'm a big fan of Judy Collins. I think she's absolutely wonderful and she's a stunning looking woman. Uh -huh. And I just promised I couldn't, I wanted to say something. That's hilarious. You know? um, and it's happened to, it still happens to me quite a lot, but it, it's, wow. better, it's better now than it used to be, but um, it's still not easy. Well, you were contemporaries with the Beatles. I mean, I think that they their star kind of rose a little bit quicker and earlier than some. Well, they, were, um, they, were two, they were two years earlier, with, um, really. And they kind of started at the end of 63, big time in 64, weren't they? And but we you, were social, you were socializing with all those guys to some degree, correct? Well, we, we, well, we supported them. We were the backup band. We, uh -huh. we went on before them. And bands like the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, um, well, all of them really. We we there wasn't one of those Mersey Mersey bands that we didn't support somewhere. Sure. In sure. Club somewhere. <clears throat> Fantastic days though. And they were all a great bunch of guys. I mean, that was the one common thing. Uh Brian Jones, I was particularly friends with. I, I seemed to have a rapport with Brian. Uh I got on really well with Brian. Um, a fellow Pisces, you see. Oh, okay. Uh, so Keith Moon was the last of the original members to join the band. I want to know, what was it about him and his style that kind of closed the circle in your mind and maybe uh, Peter's mind? Um, uh, I don't know whether it ever closed. Hmm. I don't think it ever closed in Peter's mind. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, Keith, Peter, Pete always had a little problem with Keith's drumming, and I can't understand it because what I hear him in the band, you see, you've got to remember where I stand on the stage. Yeah. And what I do in, in with the band is is to fit the words to what's going on behind me. So I never see the band. Mm. I just feel it. And I do 
remember distinctly that day that Keith joined. There was something, because we only had a free piece, we didn't have, most other bands had an extra guitar in there. So we, but we only had a lead guitar and rhythm at one in one guitarist uh-huh. and a bass player and a drummer. So when Keith joined in on that, that very first night, what he was playing added, a, added something to the tempos, to the, I don't know, to the, just the energy, the whole... Just elevated it. The whole, yeah, it, it not just elevated it. It was, it was like you started up a jet engine. You go, whoa! It just went to another level. And like I say, I don't see them. I don't. All I do is feel. Uh-huh. And for me, it it all just that this was like a gift from, from the sky. It was just extraordinary that we found a drummer that made these two instruments come together in a way that made the sum of the whole probably a thousand times bigger than the equal parts. Well, so he was definitely it, a it, definitely it, a one of a kind. An extraordinary thing. And I mean, it, it, I think that point gets proved when we when we kind of got Kenny Jones to join the band in, in 1978 after Keith died. And Kenny's a fantastic drummer, don't get me wrong, he's a great sure. drummer. But he was totally wrong for The Who. A straight drummer in The Who, and it just didn't quite have the energy, didn't quite have the, that, that, I don't know what I don't know what it is. I can't tell you what it is. It's just something I feel and I hear, and that makes me go whoa. And the other goes, "Well, it's all right." <laughs> uh, but you know, Kenny, bless him, he was he was wrong, just as Keith Moon would have been wrong as a drummer in the Small Faces. Uh-huh. I mean, that would have been an absolute disaster. Sure. You can't imagine Moon in Faces. That <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't fit. Uh, so let's see, the Who in the early days supported, as we already said, or opened for the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, and so many others. Um, those bands were often writing, as you've said, music to make love to. Um, but you have said that Pete was writing music to fight to. Uh, can you explain that and how that put the Who in its own lane? Uh, I, I said that because it was a soundbite. <laughs> Knowing how the press work. I don't, you know, but I... But, there was something about the energy of the Who. We we it, we're we're a rock band. Rock and roll was, you know, music to make love to. It's, it's that in out down. Ding, 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 ding. The Who are not that. Who is? <laughs> it's on the one, uh, uh, and it wasn't particularly his early songs. I mean, things like Happy Jack, I'm a Boy. Yeah, that was a that was a terrible period for me as a singer, because I'm thinking, how do I get into this? And of course. To be a good singer, you you have to understand what you're singing, and you have to, to a certain amount, become the part as an actor. So it was very very tricky. But I listen back to them now, and I think I still succeeded. I listened to "I'm a Boy," for instance, which is a song about a, 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 a I think it was a triplet um, who was a boy, but his mother wanted three girls, and she had two girls and a boy. So she treated the boy like a girl. And of course he's going, but I'm a boy, I'm a boy. <laughs> and that frustration of that, if you listen to the vocal now, it's got a haunting quality to it. I was obviously a, I was obviously a better actor than I realized even in those mm. days. But it, it, it's, it was a terrible period as far as singing goes because I, I couldn't find the voice of the who. You know, this was all kind of 
I was you didn't you didn't you didn't identify with the songs or musically you I, weren't as inspired I, was, everything was such a big stretch uh -huh. and then then of course we got into doing then we got into doing tommy and it was while whilst doing tommy uh in the studio i i, I was stretching myself further and further because tommy is a complicated character and he oh yeah he, you know he's got this kind of brash uh, large, large S side to him, to his character. There's this tiny little voice inside going, "See me, feel me," and and you know that that was a stretch. But I started to get more comfortable with what I was singing and getting getting a picture of what this is all about. And when we got that on stage, that's when I really found I could expand that and and build on it, which led yeah. to obviously who's next, and then on to Quadrophenia. Yeah, you really came into your own at that point. Yeah, I was comfortable with what we were doing, and I could sing it with with with, with what was needed and completely needed at the time. Um, Roger, we, we talked a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Just about singing, you know, being a singer in a who. It's about you have to be the, the front man. Always has to be something more than a singer. Sure, it's a whole number. It's a show. Um, so we best one in the business. Uh, we talked a bit about, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and these bands that went on to become huge um, international successes. But I'm curious if there was a band um, during those early days um, that you thought was just fantastic, but for some reason they just never got the success that maybe you thought that they would have achieved. Oh, that's a tricky one. There were quite, there was a lot of bands. Yeah. Every, every, you know, there, there were so many bands. Um, I don't know. Um, it there was so, I can't say that there was so, there was just too many. No problem. No, I, I don't want one particular band that didn't get the justice. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to remember, and it's been a, been a long time. So I got to tell you, driving out of London in 1965, 66, uh -huh. in the 70s, on a Friday night, every other van on the freeway was a group. Uh -huh. <laughs> Every other vehicle going out to different towns and cities. Yeah, so there was there's just so many, so many bands. It was unbelievable. Can't can't keep track. Okay, um, so let's see. Uh, I want to ask you about Jimi Hendrix. You met Jimi Hendrix uh, several times, I think. Um, yeah. What was it about him, in your opinion? We all have our different opinions, but when you got to know him kind of personally, and also, of course, his music as well. What to you was it that made him so special? Uh, well, I mean, if you ever saw him, you had to see Jimmy live to to completely get it. He yeah. was a, wasn't the wild man off stage that he was on stage. He was right. very quiet, very poetic. Um, uh, he used to call me witch hazel. <laughs> no idea uh, why. No, but he said, hey, which hazel? <laughs> <laughs> the eyes, I, I don't know what he meant. I mean, I don't know. Um, but he, Maybe he, he didn't know. Say, well, he's just, he's just speaking poetry. You, you, uh, he, he would, he would, you know, obviously, um, but when you saw him on stage, that's when you understood <clears> what <throat> a talent he was. You, you'd, you'd never seen anything like it. You can see him on film and it's great. Sure. But to actually be there, that that just the the charisma of the man was extraordinary. Mm. Um, 
No, he was he was he was something so special. I don't think that anyone as a guitarist is ever going to be beat that. I would agree with that. <clears throat> um, so you played a show in Hyde Park several years back, during which you were knocked unconscious. I think during rehearsal. Oh, that um, was more than several years back. That was nineteen ninety six. Well, there you go. <laughs> a couple of years back, yes. <laughs> so, how did that happen, and do you still suffer any effects from it? Um, well, uh, we were rehearsing Quadrophenia for a charity event mm -hmm. for, for Prince Charles's charity, the Prince's Trust, and they sold a quarter of a million tickets for this open air concert in Hyde Park, and we we were doing a, a written kind of uh, some kind of quasi stage version of quadrophenia so it's quite a, quite quite a, an ambitious project and so we had different characters in it and um, Billy Idol was in it um, and various other people but two of the main characters one, one, one of them was Billy Idol and the other was the, the role of a guy called the Godfather and it, we had a guy called Gary Glitter which is we cast as to play him um, and we were doing the sound check the day before the show, uh, about five o'clock in the afternoon. And I was walking around the stage checking the sound from all over the stage because it's that's that's how you sound check. You don't do the show. You just this is all about getting the sound right. And only the show comes tomorrow. But Mr. Glitter, <laughs> he doesn't know how to do a sound check. <laughs> He's doing the show. And I didn't realise it. And I, I'm standing behind him listening to what can he hear? Can he hear what he's, where he is in the music? And he swings the microphone stand around his head, which promptly hit me straight smack in the foot of it, hit me straight in the eye there. Um, and it fractured my cheekbone, broke my nose. Uh, my, my eye was hanging out almost. It was, it was, and it knocked me out for about, at least 10 minutes I was out cold I mean that's a long that's a long time did it break the eye socket yeah it broke fractured yeah. the eye socket um so this side of my face is still not right <laughs> um about any side effects I mean I had double vision for a very very long time two years um wow. when I looked to the left it was always uh, you know it was it was weird the microphone throwing became a little bit difficult to the left <laughs> um so that's a pretty that's a pretty serious side effect but but i think um, i don't know what the side effects will be till i'm older and i'm just keeping my fingers crossed as far as that's concerned but generally speaking quite, it generally speaking it kind of hit everything healed up fairly well as far as you know well yeah but you don't know what it's done if it had hit me one inch further that way it would have killed me wow i mean it knocked me, my feet were, I was, I was not, my feet were literally two foot off, off the ground. There's a photo of it actually hitting me with my, it's not my feet literally two foot up that way. Wow. <laughs> and wow. I'm going back. <laughs> that that well, was I, the force. You know, a microphone stand weighs about 25 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was probably swinging, you know, at the end of the foot, at the end of it was probably doing... Sixty. Well, and, and and credit to you. I think you went on to play the show the next day. Correct. Well, yeah, that's me though. <laughs> All I should have done is go to bed and nurse myself. Yeah. But I'll never give up. I'll never give up. No. That must have been a rough show, though. No, it was a great show. But I was. Really? I, I, 
It was a great show. I did it, and it, we got really good reviews for it, and I sang it well. Um, I had a patch on my eye to hold my eye in that tried to leave the socket every time I hit a high note, <laughs> which was a little difficult. No, that, that, that is true. That is actually because the pressure was trying to push it out of the socket, push it wow. past the, 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 the fracture. But the, um, show, the show must go on, I guess. No, it was just that we'd done so much rehearsing for this thing and it was a charity. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to let 250,000 people down. It's as simple as that. Um, and that's how I am. Um, that meant everything to me to just to deliver what we'd said we were going to do. That's great. Uh, Roger, you've worked with uh, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam many times over the year. He is a huge fan of The Who and, of course, an admirer of yours. Um, but he seems to hold a special place in your heart, too. Um, what is it about him that you admire? Um, Ed, oh, what can you say about Ed? I just, I don't, I don't, I've always just got on with him. I, I love him as a singer. I think he's got just a, a different quality than anyone else out there. And he's a real singer. Mm. Ed, Ed really sings, you know, yeah. um, not just a screamer. Because I'm not a big fan of, of um, heavy metal music. Mm -hmm. and all that screaming stuff it, it i don't get it it all sounds it all sounds the same to me <laughs> it's it's not it's kind of not music i like music to sound like music um uh but ed and he's just a wonderful guy and he's he, he's got his feet on the ground always did have even at a very young age he, he was really grounded i think that's what i like about him and he's um, been a huge supporter of our charity work. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. Um, so as we discussed a couple of years ago, uh, or sorry, a couple of, as we discussed earlier, a couple of years ago, you released your memoir, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite. What do you think makes a good memoir and why did you finally decide to write yours? I don't know the answer to either of those. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I decided to write mine um, because I thought, I was, I, was, I, was 70, I was 73 years old when I started it, and I thought, I, my dad died at 73. Mm. So I thought, well, we have, we, we've never made old bones in my family. So I thought, if I'm ever going to do something, I might as well start it now. And I didn't do a book deal. I didn't do a, I didn't do a deal with a publisher to get a big advance. I thought, it's not the way to write a book. Mm. The way to write a book is to write a book and then see if it's any good. And if it's any good, see if anyone wants to buy it. Simple as that. And which is what I did. And I employed a writer to help me and guide me. And, and that's what we came up with. And I, I'm very proud of it. I mean, it's only one part of the story, but a story has to be focused and it has to carry people through. I also wanted to straighten out some things that, 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 that Who fans always questioned. You know, why did we get rid of Lambert and Stamp? Well, we got rid of them because they were stealing from us, and you can't have you can't have thieves as your managers. It doesn't work. I didn't want to get them rid of them creatively. You couldn't have, couldn't have wished for better people, but they had their hands in the till, and we we were getting robbed. So you have no choice, and it was tough. It was tough to do that. They were my, they were my friends till the end. Sure, especially the stamp. Um, but but then at the time they were addicts, so I I kind of I understand what was going on. Do I like what was going on? No, I understand what was going on, 
Can I change what was going on? No. So I have to live with it. And I never really held it against them. But I just wanted them out of our lives as far of as course. controlling our business. That was a wise, wise decision. Tough decision, but a wise decision. Uh, not long after the events of 9-11, The Who performed at the concert for New York City. Uh, the Who's performance that night has been regarded as a uniquely powerful performance um, from that event. How did you feel performing that night? Was, was there kind of a special feeling in the air? What was going through your mind? Uh, it was tough. It was, it was really tough. Yeah. Because uh, we were faced with this sea of blue uniforms, uh, occasionally dotted with a child mm. in feet. And, and some of the, the, the kids were wearing their father's helmets. Oh, wow. Um, it was incredibly emotionally difficult. Yeah. Um, but we, 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 like everybody else on that show, and I know everybody struggled with it, what do we play? You know, is it going to be a, what kind of event is it, can it be? And then this is where Pete really was helpful because he just said, let's just play what we do. We'll just play some rock. <laughs> and which is what we did. We went out. And obviously these, these people that have been working, rescuing, seeing things that we can't imagine how awful it must have been yeah. for the past six weeks. All they wanted to do was to, to let it go and escape. And that music freed them. I mean, we, we, we hit, it, hit the right note. Um, what do I, rem I remember? So I just, I'll never forget that visual of looking out for that audience. It was incredibly difficult. I nearly lost it in Behind Blue Eyes. Wow. You know, no one knows it's like. They, well, no one could have known what it was like to stand on that stage that, that night looking out at Madison Square Garden for that site. It was, it was phenomenal. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you could have right. cut, yeah. you could have cut yeah. the air with a knot. Oh sure, but I think that's why I think that's why your performance was so it really stood out and it really moved people so much because as you said, they I've just needed a release. I've never seen it. I've, I, I can't. I can't ever watch any of our performances. Really? I know. I. I. I it, 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 oh, it, it, it happens and it's gone. <laughs> what about? Do you ever get nostalgic and go back and look at like the really early days, something like that? Um. I have seen a few clips, but I'll watch it for a couple of minutes and that's it. <laughs> and think, blimey, we were better than I thought. <laughs> Does it make you uncomfortable? Why can't, why can't you watch it? I don't know. Because maybe I, can't, I, can't, I can't inhabit that now and I, I've moved on. So that was a moment in my life and it's gone. Mm. It's, it's past and it, 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 I, I like to think of what I can achieve from now on. Not what I achieved <clears throat> back then. It's not that. It's not, I guess it's a healthy way to look at it. Um, is there someone today, um, someone you know, or even a public figure that is inspiring you these days that might surprise people? Maybe somebody from your life, maybe a writer, another musician that might that might catch people off guard that you're really attracted to. Um, oh, there's so many. Uh, not not any one particular person. No. Okay. Um, um, no, I, I, I'm finding the world a bit, a, a little bit um, confusing at the moment. I'm finding nothing quite adds up to me, my kind of way of thinking. What I, do you mean I by that? At, 
Well, I look at I look at them what we're aiming for as far as climate change and all those things. But there's so many, and I but none of it quite adds up. They're not. It's nice for politicians to come up with the big gestures. Oh yes, we'll do that, and we have this protocol and that protocol. But when you crunch where we are and the, our energy needs and all that, we do have all the answers. But all the everything they're putting in place to solve the problem aren't, aren't really further down the line actually solving anything. I mean, electric cars, for instance, they're more polluting than a than a diesel or petrol car of today. When you actually build them and take, you know, you mine the stuff, you build them, you use them, you get the power from the grid, and then you have to decommission them. They're more polluting to the planet than a than a than a you know old Ford Mustang from 1960s. So I find it incredibly confusing, and I and I find it frustrating because we we have politicians now that look on a short-term message with a long-term effect but it doesn't add up it doesn't does that make sense Am yeah I making yeah. Sense? yeah absolutely it's, in my head it doesn't it just doesn't add up it really is it's weird um but and, I, and pol politics really frustrates me at the moment because we are so divided and we desperately need people um to, to pull us together not divide us and, and i don't see anyone doing that and it, you, mm. you know i know you've got you have issues in the states yeah um, we've, we've all watched it the country yeah. so divided but i don't see either side of that coin pulling it together i'm sorry i don't yeah. you know no you're right they're all just as bad as each other and you go well that's a terrible position to be in it's a big mess in in both of our countries i guess um, well, let's move on um your relationship with pete townsend has definitely gone through some rough patches over the years um, but now he's someone that you truly value very dearly in your life. Why is that? No, I've always valued him in my life. Yeah. I say uh, now, I've always valued him, him in my in life. In different ways, I mean, maybe. In different ways, yes. But um, I've always cared about Pete. I know, I've always understood him. I think that's why I can emote and, and empathize with his lyrics and, and, and do what I do with his music the way I do. Um, I, I, I recognized his genius very early on in my life um, mm -hmm. and and backed off and let him run with it. You know, the worst thing that could have happened to Pete is you have people insisting, oh, well, you know, let's do something. To Just let him get on with it. Now you do your bit and let him do, do his bit and then it'll all be all right. But if you try and interfere too much, that process of of, of of birthing it'll be a mess so i'm i had the i had the temerity to kind of let him do his thing and i i he's, he's a very complex bunch of fellas but now you know i think you guys famously um didn't get along for extended periods of time but now you're such close friends um, what's what's that like for you? I, I, I don't, you know, all this didn't get along. Um, that's the public. That's the public persona, I do believe. Well, we, well maybe because you know, Pete said some pretty derogatory things in the press about me. I don't think you'll ever find much said about me. Mm. Only that, um, you know, there were times when he was he was blaming the Hoover 
playing crap and doing this and doing that. Uh, and it was at a time when he was seriously in alcohol and, and serious drugs. Mm. Uh, and it, it, the band were all doing their bit as good as they'd ever done it and supporting him. But he was impossible to support. It wasn't the band that was the problem. It was him. But that's not you know, not about not getting on. It's just a phase that we went through. Sure, sure. Uh, final life. Yeah, of course. Uh, finally, Roger, I'd like to ask you about your work with the Teenage Cancer Trust. You mentioned that earlier. Um, what inspired you to get involved, and how has being involved affected you over the years? Um, it inspired me. I was invited to join UNICEF, United Nations. United Nations mm -hmm. and I looked at it and I thought I don't really want to do this um I don't travel well and it would mean, mean a lot of traveling and I do enough with the band mm -hmm. um uh I've also um you know got some I, I don't know I just wanted to find something that inspired me more than that it's UNICEF has so many ambassadors mm -hmm. from, from the arts yeah uh, me being there or not wouldn't have made much difference. Um, so I wanted to find something more unique that I could, could really get inspired by. And the idea of, of, of changing the way adolescents and young adults were treated in the hospital system at that time, this was 30 years ago, a, a light bulb went on in my head because I suddenly realised it threw me back to my 11-year-old Years, my 11, 12, 13 year old years, where I was struggling with who I am, the 15, 16, 17, that whole teenage period was such a difficult time in my life. And I thought, what would that have been like? Having been told that I had cancer and I might not survive it. At a time when a spot on your nose is a really big issue. You no. can't go out for a week. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, and I thought, what you know what must it be like for them because in those days all that time ago and even in america up to 12 years ago uh, eight years ago um if a teenager was 13 years old he could end up next to a two-year-old or even if he's 18 years old he could end up in a bed next to a two-year-old wow. and never see another teenager all the time he was going through his treatment mm -hmm. and the treatments are you know quite severe um, so I thought, what a great idea is to have environments where this group are in age-appropriate care, where they can be together, they can help each other, they can talk to each other, they, their mental health is going to be that much better because they've got contact yeah. with their own age group. Uh -huh. And so a light bulb went on 30 years ago because my doctor started a charity and I'm just passionate about it. And, I, and then I saw that America was uh, in the same situation as the UK. Your your system again was you still had the old split of pediatric adult, and mm. and I, I I met youngsters who were one fifteen year old girl down from from Georgia came to see me with a brain tumor, and I, I stayed friends with her and. She woke up in a, in a bed next to a two-year-old and at the bottom of her bed was a clown with a blooming ukulele. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? You know, being, I think she was 16 when she had a, a op. Mm 
I mean, you can just imagine what that would do to your brain. And all you want to be is around your your age. Um, so I've got it started in America. And I, I've got to say, uh, America has, has proved really interesting because the hospitals, which I thought were going to be difficult to, to get to understand what we're trying to do here, mm -hmm. because it does mean more a bit of reorganizing and it means a lot of goodwill mm. and and support the hospitals in america have been fantastic we've, we've already got 43 programs going in hospitals around america we've been going eight years but the fundraising the fundraising from from corporates and things like that has been extremely difficult and i'm puzzled by that oh really um, well you know with teenagers with cancer there's not enormous numbers of them, they're, they're, mm. but there is enough. And I've got to tell you, in the last 10 years, their numbers have risen 30%, which is kind of That's alarming. Yeah. It is alarming. Uh, uh, but there's something I don't know. Teenagers, they don't... You put a child on a, on a publicity thing for cancer, people will throw money at you. They carry, a, young, a young child. Yeah, a young child. They carry the bam. I call it the Bambi effect. They mm -hmm. got the eyes. And they they make people feel sorry for them. For some reason or the other, people don't tend to feel sorry for teenagers. I don't know why. I, the only thing I can put it down to. So that bit of it's been difficult, and it kind of puzzles me, yeah. because there's a huge opportunity here. In my opinion, the medical world is, especially the research world, because this age group. Adolescents, young adults, the, the, the 13 to 26 year olds, they have they have been so neglected in the research when it comes to cancer. It's 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 almost criminal criminal. You can't because cancer research is so overfunded. It's got so much money going into it. Yet very little research is done on that age group. And their their excuse for that is, oh, there's not enough of them. Hang about, there's quite a few thousand. I mean, it's it's about seventy thousand a year or something. That's quite a lot. That's quite a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, and especially if it's one one of your kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I and I just feel that it, we're at a time in history where the medical profession profession and the hospital system is really missing an opportunity to recognise that we used to be in a world where it, where it was pediatric adult people used to go to school and then they went out to work and you were a child and then you were an adult since the 50s 60s 70s 80s well, where we are now you cannot deny that the 13s to 26 year olds they're almost like an alien race they are so different not only in the way they in the way the way they you know they act together the way they the way they communicate together their whole lives are so different there yeah. but their physiology is so different yeah. you know a, a, a pediatric oncologist when he's faced with a 14 year old six foot four boy with a beard <laughs> you know he goes well that's what happens today and no one's noticed you never would have got that 50 years ago mm. but you get it quite quite a lot today yeah and it's kind of scary, <laughs> but and the, and so the, the pediatric guy goes, well, do I treat this 
it's one as an adult or or I don't know. There's not very little research done in it. So there's a huge opportunity being missed here. To, well, you're, to, you're, you're certainly doing your part and you're bringing a lot of attention. I think it's time and it is, it is the right time in, in medical history, that just as it was the right time in 1802 to chart, to, to kind of change the system to, to have children and adult wards. And at the first children's hospital 1802 we're at a time now that the first adolescent young adult wing of a hospital for any hospitalized illness for that age group needs to be founded we we we, we just need to do that we need to recognize that the, men, the mental um stability and the mental wellness of the patient is going to have an enormous effect on any kind of treatment you're giving them for serious uh. illness your, your work in that area is very much appreciated and, and commendable as well. Um, Roger, this has been great. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk with you and hear your life stories and hear about your inspirations. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. Okay, all the best to you. Thanks a lot, Roger. It was truly an honor to speak with Roger and to hear the great stories he had to share. He's not only a great singer, but also quite a good storyteller as well. To stay up to date on Roger and The Who, find The Who's official accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also visit thewho.com. Roger's memoir, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, is available both in print and as an audiobook narrated by Roger himself. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen.